This is a Federal News Network podcast. Ever since Interpol, Western governments have been cooperating on crime. In recent years, cybercrime has risen sharply, and it also calls for the good guy nations to cooperate. For some overseas perspective, we turn to the former director of the UK's National Cybersecurity Centre, now a professor at Oxford, Kieran Martin. Mr. Martin, good to have you on. Hey, Tom. Thanks for having me on. And just briefly describe the agency, I guess you were the founding director of it, the National Cybersecurity Centre in the UK government. Is it similar to the CISA agency that we have here in Homeland Security? In part, it's very similar to CISA and had a great partnership with Chris Krebs, the founding director of CISA and a huge fan of Jen Easterly, his successor. And it also, I mean, the UK being a much smaller economy than the US, it also takes in part of what would be the cybersecurity directorate of the National Security Agency. So constitutionally and legally, the National Cybersecurity Centre in the UK is a subset of GCHQ, which is the NSA equivalent. But as a result of reforms in 2015, which I led and then implemented, it became sort of public-facing one-stop shop for national cybersecurity, whether that was managing incidents that affected the public, whether it was looking at the top threats from hostile nations, or whether it was actually, frankly, just giving good advice to consumers on IoT products or passwords or whatever it was. That was the NCSE's job, just to promote general cybersecurity everywhere across the UK. In some ways, I guess the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency is starting to move that way a little bit just by the evidence of its frequent issuing of alerts and warnings and patch updates and so forth on all sorts of commercial software to anybody that wants to subscribe. Absolutely. And we talked a lot to CISA colleagues and friends and friends in other like-minded countries, good guy countries, I think he called them, about how to do this. And one of the challenges was just like encryption and cryptography itself over the years, it used to be the preserve of governments with only people who could afford to do it because it was so technical and specialized. But in the digital age, everyone has equities and and a stake in the security and safety of the digital homeland. So we find that you could have all this knowledge, brilliant knowledge gained through extremely good capabilities worked by superb people in a classified environment. But if you couldn't do anything with them, they weren't going to help anybody. So I think... If you look at some of the stuff that the NCSC's pushed out, threat indicators from Russian state compromises that we just publish so that people can run them through the systems and try and get rid of them, that's a good example. And I think if you look in the US side, I thought the work that CISA did in terms of electoral security were previously top secret equities were reaching small bits of local government in all 50 states. That's fantastic. And that's the way you've got to do cybersecurity in the 21st century. Sure. And many of the attacks coming at the corporate level and very expensive associations, large corporations in the United States are ransomware motivated. Is that also the case in the UK? Increasingly so. I think it's always been a problem. Chris Krebs at CISA and I used to discuss it often, but it was kind of a hidden problem for many years because the essence of ransomware is you're extorting people to pay and often that's best done quietly. So given there isn't even a duty to report that you've been hit by ransomware. If you do it in a way where you get a wealthy company and you cause them in some inconvenience, they can just pay and hope the problem goes away without anyone noticing. In 2021, not just in the US because of the colonial pipeline incident and so forth, but here in Europe, you had the severe disruption to Irish healthcare. In the UK, you had some lesser noticed outside of the UK. It was noticed here, disruption to London schools and so forth. 
where in one school the doors wouldn't open because they're electronically controlled and the system had been ransomware. I think you're beginning to see, thanks to perhaps overreach by the criminals, you're beginning to see some pretty serious social disruption as a result of ransomware. And that's why the heads of government rightly have become more and more concerned. I mean, I wouldn't have thought a year ago that ransomware would merit a long paragraph in a G7 communique, but that's what happened earlier this year in the G7 summit in Cornwall. Leaders from across the world are increasingly concerned about this pretty dreadful criminal problem. We're speaking with Kieran Martin. He is a professor at Oxford, but also founding director of the UK's National Cybersecurity Centre. And the issue of attribution is always a problem for governments trying to respond. But I think it's pretty clear, and I don't know that anyone seriously disagrees, that China, Russia, perhaps North Korea are pretty common sources of these types of attacks, ransomware and otherwise. And so in some ways, those nations are common adversaries of the Western nations, Great Britain, France, and so on, United States. So should there be greater cooperation or what form can cooperation take among the nations that are trying to battle what China and Russia are doing? It's a significant challenge. There is diversity in that hostile threat. I mean, you mentioned three of the nations that the US and the UK have attributed attacks to. There's the fourth being Iran. And they act for different reasons. They don't really collaborate themselves, but they've got very different ways of doing things. Russia operates often very stealthily and for very obviously geopolitical objectives. China has often tried to just steal intellectual property in a way that the Russians don't. So there's sort of different problems. Russia hosts and harbors rather than drives ransomware, if you like. The government tolerates the existence of these criminal networks. So you have to try and adapt different solutions to different problems. But at the same time, I think there has been a necessary improvement in cybersecurity cooperation amongst Western like-minded countries in the past few years. I think at UK-US level, thanks to the Five Eyes partnership, it's certainly at that sort of classified high-end of the threat uh, part of the picture, it's been pretty good. Um, the National Security Agency are the best colleagues that I could have hoped for. We're trying to build those partnerships out because you know government cooperation, government agency cooperation, however good, um, will only be mostly effective, as we've been discussing, if it can extend into better practices in the private sector. So I think with the likes of CISA, with the likes of, say, there's an organization called ANSI in France and um, at the BSI in Germany, which are equivalents to the NCSC, We're actually looking at cooperation on things like threat information sharing, but also common guidance, common attribution, and actually common efforts to improve the safety and security of our technology. Because part of the underlying problem here, Tom, is that although it's nobody's fault, we've built up over a generation a set of technologies that we're all increasingly reliant on, particularly post-pandemic. And there are major structural problems with the security of those products and services, and we need to get after that problem too. Probably including the Zoom message system we're using right now. Well, any communications technology carries risk and you have to, I mean, this is going to be broadcast. So the threat of espionage is by definition low. And in a sense, that's a helpful conversation to have. I was still in government when the pandemic struck. And when you're talking about a major public health emergency, what are you going to tell the British people at 5 p.m. today in your press conference? I can give a stuff if that's done over Zoom because it's going to be public in a few hours. And I want my political leaders to have the best possible way of communicating sort of act together in policy terms so that they can give the best possible guidance to the British government. And if somebody's spying on preparations for a press conference in two hours, I don't care. 
However, when President Trump was saying, how should we approach the WHO in respect of China and what should the policy posture there be? And of course, President Trump made his decisions and allies had to respond to it. I don't want conversations like that carried over vulnerable platforms. So you have to take a risk-based approach. We have so much communication now that we have to think through what matters and what doesn't. And that's actually one of the first steps of thinking about good cybersecurity. Sure. I wonder if President Biden will have fish or chicken at the papal dinner that he's likely to be attending pretty soon. Well, maybe you can intercept the preparatory Zoom call. (laughs) Right. But the other issue is the degree to which governments that try to act in a fully legitimate way, like Great Britain and the United States, shoot back on the cyber front. And that is a dilemma they have been wrestling with for a long time now. What is the latest thinking? And when do you, maybe they do hack back and they just don't tell us. But how is that thought about these days? For a decade now, the U.S. has had a formally declared part of the U.S. military called Cyber Command, of course, headed by the same person who also heads the National Security Agency. The U.K. much more recently has avowed an organization called the National Cyber Force, which is there to do much the same thing, which is a joint Ministry of Defense GCHQ partnership. So the capabilities are there. And the question is, what to use them for and in what circumstances? So there are times when, you know, these are just general national security capabilities that are good for your general national security, nothing to do with cybersecurity. So the UK has declared that we used it against ISIS. If you remember ISIS's horrific communications propaganda machine, which was seriously destabilized by some US, UK and Australian joint action, and that's public. And that's a good idea. I think people are increasingly talking about should you use it against the ransomware operators? I think there's merit in that. Where it has limits, and these aren't ideological limits on my part, they're just practical limits. I remember when Russian spies, not criminals, Russian spies did the SolarWinds, the so-called SolarWinds spying campaign. There were lots of talk about retribution there. But what do you actually mean by that? Do you mean spy back? Well, nations spy on each other. Do you mean hack the hackers? Well, these guys are working for the Russian equivalent of the NSA, so they're quite a hard target. Are you talking about disrupt the news in Moscow? Well, what point are you trying to make? Are you talking about disrupt the power supply to a hospital in Vladivostok? Well, I'm not sure that's proportionate or ethical. So you don't necessarily have to fight cyber with cyber. I'm not a cyber pacifist, but, you know, hacking back is an overly simplistic way of actually talking about what is just another generic national security capability that's appropriate in some circumstances and useful in some circumstances, and it's neither appropriate nor useful in others. In many ways, then, it's equivalent to any other weapons platform, even though it's easy to say, well, let's bomb the heck out of them. In reality, that is a tool that you use with great care and with great thought and with great consensus well, building. Precisely. And you got to think about things such as can you store them safely because these things can be stolen and then they can be leaked and sold online and somebody else can use them. And there have been concerning instances of that. We don't want to be in the position that Russia put us all in in the summer of 2017 when they went after Ukraine yet again. And by mistake, it seems, they ended up wiping out the systems of Maersk, the Danish shipping giant, which controls 20% of the world's shipping. They ended up disrupting production at a chocolate factory in Tasmania. And we don't want to be in a position when any of our operations cause that sort of... I mean, uh, some of these uh, computer effects are called viruses, and they're called viruses for a reason. They look for a host. When you fire them, you have to be careful. You know what they're going to do once they go on. And this pretty reckless attack by Russia, and there was another very reckless attack six weeks earlier in 2017 by North Korea, which hit British hospitals and German railway stations. We don't want to be doing stuff like that. Why on earth would we? So, as you say, like any capability, you use it carefully and you use it proportionately. That's not defeatist. That's just, you know, we need to make sure we use the advantages that we have. We have 
open democracies with stronger economies, with better technology, and we have excellent military capabilities. Just because somebody fires a cyber weapon at us doesn't mean we have to do exactly the same thing back to them. In other words, there is no silver bullet, pun intended. No. It's a constant yes. blocking and tackling and revision of your policy and never letting your eye off the site. And it's attritional. Cybersecurity is attritional. You know, I think 30, 40 years ago, we started talking about, you know, cyber war and cyber catastrophes. And uh, Secretary Panetta was challenged recently. He said, you know, why did you talk about cyber Pearl Harbors and so forth? And he said it was to get people's attention. I mean, the way cyber effects work, they're not realistically going to bring down aircraft or things like that because we've got backup systems. You have to have backup systems. You know, we you would go through if you're in government, you'd go through modeling of scenarios. So let's say and this is a real example, you could model an attack on the signaling outside a major rail station. And what happens if they knock out the signaling? Do the trains collide into each other, causing mass fatalities? Or do they stop where they are, which causes mass disruption and convenience, but nobody gets hurt? And of course, it's the latter. So cybersecurity is really attritional. It's about getting bits and pieces of strategic advantage. Sometimes it causes major disruption, such as, for example, to the US election in 2016 or British hospitals in 2017. But yeah, it's a constant attritional battle against some pretty thoughtful and capable bad people. So therefore, it's incumbent on business and government to the extent that it offers service to the public to have backup ways of being able to do business, such as, say, in a retail chain. And we still take cash. Well, I mean, there's certainly that's an interesting point and you have to judge the risks and so forth. But in Sweden earlier this year, as a result of a ransomware attack, the co-op, which I didn't know this, but it apparently supplies 20 percent of Swedish food retail. And that's disproportionately in rural areas where it might be the only shop for miles around. They had to throw away lots of fresh food because they couldn't sell it because it was purely digital. I think there are things around that sort of resilience and uh, so forth. I think we need to look carefully. You know, I know U.S. colleagues are looking at carefully about things like Colonial, where you know the idea of critical infrastructure is that you might be able to disrupt the running of a company like Colonial through a ransomware attack, but you shouldn't really be able to cause an effect that causes the pipeline to be turned off. But clearly, that's what happens. You need to look at that. But then I think also you need to look at cyber defenses themselves. You know, there are some pretty elite hackers out there. They're really, really good. But there aren't that many of them. We sort of glorify them and we think that there's, you know, all sorts of teenagers in the uh, sitting around in bedrooms who can hack everything in the Pentagon. No, they can't. You might be able to get into the periphery of some, you know, sensitive networks and so on. But what concerns me most about things we've seen in 2021 is that median, I mean, SolarWinds was a very sophisticated operation. That sort of stuff's going to happen. Leave it to the NSA, Cyber Command and so on to do their best with their fabulous people and resources to try and make sure that sort of thing happens less and less. But in terms of things like some of the other hacks, Colonial JPS meets um, Irish healthcare over here in, in Europe. Too many of these things causing major impact were done on the basis of not terribly sophisticated attacks. So the defences just need to be improved across the board. That's as much a commercial and private sector issue as it is a sort of you know, national security issue. And a final question. You've had good praise published for the cybersecurity executive order that came out of the Biden White House back in May. It was thousands of words, a complete confusion in some sense of deadlines. But fundamentally, you feel that it moves the federal government forward? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think, firstly, the Biden team has assembled a pretty stellar cast of cybersecurity professionals. 
you know, the likes of Chris Inglis and Jenny Sleen, Anne Booger and Rob Joyce. So clearly it's taking the challenge very, very seriously. Secondly, I mean, I'm not an American, but I have done a lot of work with the US government over the years. I know the way the US bureaucracy works as well as any outsider can. So the fact that the executive order is very long, I think, reflects the special dynamics of the US system. But if you look at sections three and four on federal government security and supply chain security, and I know not many of your listeners may actually uh, have the time to look at such esoteric things. But when you look at the sort of headings and that, and you think if that is the subject of sustained focused implementation from one of the largest, most powerful and richest entities in the world, i.e. the US federal government, you know, if done properly, this could really, it's paying attention to the right areas, those dull, worthy, but fantastically important areas of basic uh, security in the supply chain and federal government networks they could really turn the dial over the next few years if sustained effort is put on to successful implementation. Kieran Martin is founding director of the National Cybersecurity Center of the United Kingdom, now a professor at Oxford University. Thanks so much for joining me. My absolute pleasure, Tom. Thank you. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything, and it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life, and um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con- consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way 
to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it. Um, From Sea to the C-Suite, fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but... Uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, And I I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention and it was... It was, you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions. Uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and... Um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From Sea to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon. 
and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. Everything's getting more expensive these days. Gas, rent, and even your music. While other music services keep jacking up their prices, Live One is letting you lock in the best music membership at the best price. Live One Plus is just $3.99 per month. Get all your favorite music ad-free, along with unlimited skips and maximum audio quality. Beat inflation with the best deal in music at just $3.99 per month. Visit liveone.com slash bestmusic to get Live One Plus now. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.